What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. So it's time for Deep Trouble. And once again, Dr. Mark Halloran's with me here in the studios of 94.9 Main FM. And today, Mark, you'll be interviewing James Flynn. James Flynn is a emeritus professor at the Joint Departments of Politics and Psychology at the University of Otago, New Zealand. Professor Flynn has combined political and moral philosophy and psychology to clarify problems such as justifying humane ideals and whether it makes sense to rank races and classes by merit. James Flynn is a veteran of academia. He was born in 1934. That makes him about 86, I reckon. Still working. Mm, Yes. Another thing about James Flynn is that he was a member for the Congress of Racial Equality and a civil rights activist. He faced persecution and monitoring by the FBI in the late 1950s. He was investigated by the FBI for his involvement in the civil rights movement and was attacked on the street while police looked on and there were no arrests made. He was later held incommunicado by police for a day, which created a great deal of anxiety within the black community where he was living at the time due to his disappearance. So James Flynn has been, uh, I suppose you'd say, classic liberal and on the forefront of civil rights and racial equality for all of his life. There are certain things we must explain in this interview. There are certain figures that are referred to. So we're going to just race through a few of these things, Mark. For instance, the Flynn effect, that will come up in this interview. And so could you quickly just outline the Flynn effect? Uh, The Flynn effect was actually attributed to him by intelligence researcher Charles Murray. It's basically the idea that each generation is increasing uh, in intelligence on intelligence tests like the, uh, the WACE, the Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale. Could you explain the differences oh, yes. between the intelligence tests? Uh, yeah, there's, so there's the Stanford Binet, uh, the Weschler Adult and the WISC, which is the children's scale, are the ones that are predominantly used now. There's also Raven's Matrices, which have been contended to be less sensitive to cultural biases and things like that. So they're more, they have more cultural validity across culture. So there are a raft of different types of intelligence scales, but predominantly we focus on the Weschler. And I've actually administered the the Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale in my work as a provisional psychologist. Right. And, of course, now we get to the the hot ticket item of the interview, James Flynn and his relationship with Charles Murray. Charles Mm. Murray is probably one of the most divisive figures in intelligence research because of a famous paper or a famous book he wrote. Do you want to outline this book and why it was so controversial and why has it remained controversial since it was published, The Bell Curve? The Bell Curve was incredibly controversial when it came out because it was a book focusing on population differences in intelligence and there is a chapter devoted to racial differences in intelligence at a population level. Eric Siegel said that the bell curve endorses prejudice by virtue of what it does not say. Nowhere does a book address why it investigates racial differences in IQ. By never spelling out a reason for reporting on these differences in the first place, the authors transmit an unspoken yet unequivocal conclusion. Race is a helpful indicator as to whether a person is likely to hold certain capabilities. Uh, One of the recent furors when this erupted was an interview between the new atheist Sam Harris and Charles Murray. And then Harris faced an incredible amount of criticism simply by virtue of the fact that he interviewed Charles Murray. Mm. Uh, Charles Murray is a conservative that works for the American Institute. So he faced an incredible amount of criticism by the fact that he interviewed Murray. But... He then went into a debate with Vox's Ezra Klein. Ezra Klein drew upon James Flynn's work in order to refute both Murray and Harris. 
So James Flynn has always been seen as the refutation for all of Murray's ideas. Because as you said earlier, James Flynn stresses the environmental effects on IQ. Mm. I'm sure you'll find the interview stimulating and interesting, and so let's play it. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor James Flynn. Hello, Jim. Hello, Bob. Uh, this is Jim Flynn. Oh, hi, this is Mark Halloran. Thanks very much for doing this, Jim. I really appreciate it. I'll enjoy it, I'm sure. I wanted to start uh, with a question about your father, who I read was a socialist democrat. I think the story about being locked out of the factory when the workers voted for William Jennings Bryan was a pretty powerful one. Yep. Uh, and how he helped Eugene Victor Debs, uh, president of the American Socialist Party, out of jail um, after he was branded a traitor by President Woodrow Wilson. I just was interested in the influence your father has had on your life, politically and in terms of your work. Well, he didn't, I think, influence my life as directly as going to the University of Chicago. I mean, it's true that I was raised in a household where I had a a father who had a favorable due of the Democrats, particularly insofar as they were behind the trade unions and the workers. I think also of equal importance was going to the University of Chicago and being in about the only atmosphere in the party era where to be progressive was actually in fashion. I think what I took away from your book, one of the most interesting things was the right wing or conservative, the power within universities at the time that you were a young academic uh, seeking tenure and how that affected your career. Um, and you talked about essentially the power that was wielded by conservatives uh, within universities and how that's very different today from the power that's wielded by, say, far left groups within universities. Well, it's more vicious in that it extends off campus. I mean, not that some of the left-wing groups don't resort to saying that they'll beat up your family and your kids, but they don't usually, and they may have the power to bounce you from university, they don't usually have the power that was operative during the McCarthy period, where if you were a working-class person, prevent you from getting into a public housing project. Or if you're a teacher, you had to take a loyalty oath to teach in the New York City schools. Or they could try and get you banned from any government employment or harass your relatives. So yeah. in that sense, it was much more serious. You know, they had more weapons. Now, I've heard right-wingers excuse us and saying, oh, oh, we were just against the communists. But they quite consciously used that as a club to say socialists are communists and therefore we'll beat up on them. And liberals are really communist sympathizers and will beat up on them as well. There were a few screwballs who, I guess, thought of all this as an anti-communist crusade. But the right wing in general was very pleased to see that they could effectively immobilize virtually their entire opposition by leaking them to communism. I know that you said that nothing the left has done within universities in the last 50 years approaches the totalitarian regime that the right ran when it was running in universities. You mean uh, when the right were in control? When the right were in control, yeah. Yes, well, they were in control effectively throughout much of American history. I mean, there was the Red Scare after World War I, and America had heads of universities who considered themselves devout Protestants who wanted to get rid of atheists. And they, of course, were terribly anti-gay. So there was about a hundred years, really, from the time of the Civil War up through the Korean War, where you had mainly right-wing control of universities, and people who were liberal or left had to suffer the consequences. Now, mine was one of the few where students were protected by Robert Hutchins, the chancellor, because he was always a good civil libertarian, and while his views were conservative, he was very dedicated to academic freedom and tried to protect his students or staff wherever he could. So I didn't have much problem as a student at Chicago. It was when I faced the outer world, which was still under the control of the right wing in most universities at that time. 
Do you think that the right now uses the examples that occur in some of these universities of extreme no, behaviour? I mean, people say to me, oh, it's a fight between the right and the left. Yes. You've lived long enough that you don't trust the right wing. You know if they were controlled, they'd be persecuting us. And indeed, they try to when they can. I mean, sometimes they invite speakers in the hope they will be banned, so they'll have a cause celebre. And other times, if someone on campus actually takes a left-leaning position, they try to get them banned. And my answer to that is dual. First, why give them ammunition? Why make it appear that they have free speech on their side by giving them so many cases that they can legitimately prosecute? Why not starve them of ammunition? And the reason, of course, is that most of the left don't believe in free speech either. They're pretending they do some of them now because they're suffering from this persecution, just as the right, of course, uh, are pretending that they believe in free speech because they see that their people are being outed. But it's very rare to find people who aren't involved in this type of culture war between the right and left and are willing to forbear doing to the other side what they feel is being done to them. Well, reading your book, it made me think that I wonder when the university had really ever been a place where you had freedom of speech. It varies so much from place to place. I mean, as I say in one chapter, Chicago today is a much more secure place from left-wing persecution than, let's say, either Harvard is or Princeton and uh, certainly more so than at these universities, or Yale. I think I compared, do I not, Harvard and Yale with Chicago as three universities. And even when I taught, you were relatively safe if you were a lecturer of Chicago. Remember, the better the university, the more they have people who actually don't like persecution and violation of free speech. So what would leave you reasonably safe at Harvard or Chicago exposes you to the mob if you teach at some place that is less elevated than that. Mm. And also, it depends a good deal as to whether people on campus spend all their time organizing, persecuting people who don't agree with them. I mean, Middlebury is the case. I don't think the people who run Middlebury really wanted to run Charles Murray off campus. Indeed, they made every effort not to. It was essentially the students who played along with the townspeople and declared him essentially a non-person. That's not true everywhere. You're, you're yeah. not going to find that type of student militant behavior at, let's say, Farley Dickinson. You certainly make the point that Chicago rates as one of the better universities in terms of free speech. And always has, even during the period of conservative dominance. Which I think seems to be a rare thing, because when I thought about it, I thought that, you know, like any group gathering everyone is susceptible to groupthink and when the majority of people are of one particular political leaning well that's going to control the way that everybody communicates within the group oh yes of course their motives are pure the conservatives wanted to protect america when it was being confronted by the soviet union against internal communists and wanted people to rally to the flag and today of course and here's progress uh, thanks to, I think, cognitive gains over the 20th century, most young students today are much less racist and sexist than they were 50 years ago. And indeed, many of them just get angry if you allow people who take a conservative view on race to speak. And that they've been told that these people have no academic standing and there's no reason to let them to speak. And you must make the university a place where everyone feels safe. And just having Charles Murray on campus can be sufficient, apparently, to convince people at Vassar that they have to have counseling. Uh, you know, just knowing he's there, even if they know they're not going to be in contact with him. And, of course, if they have black friends, they think, how can anyone be so insulting as to listen to somebody who has a supposedly reasoned case that Jensen just might be right about race and IQ and genes? So a lot of it, you know, is misguided fervor by the ignorant. Now, of course, they have a perfectly good formula for staying ignorant. If you never hear what the other side has to say, 
you can't marshal your evidence and reasons to refute them. The more you hold something as blind faith, the more you find it intolerable to debate it. Well, to some extent, you make the distinction, and this is what I thought was interesting, between right opinion and right knowledge. And so, to some extent, you and the students of Middlebury who ejected Charles Murray or protested against him violently are kind of of the same view, worldview, in that there is no genetic difference between groups that would underlie a difference in terms of IQ. What's different? They may well be correct, but they're totally incapable of arguing to that conclusion. (laughs) Yeah, which seems to be what you take exception to. Yes, I mean, if you're lucky historically, you are filled by your parents and the media and your fellow students with views that are less vicious than other views, and that's Mm. progress. But sadly, you're right on the distinction between knowledge and right opinion. Right opinion is happening to be, as an accident of history, correct. Knowledge is knowing what the other side has to say and being able to beat them in a contest of ideas. And I think you probably found chapter three of my book in a way the most telling, where I remarked that if I were a student at Middlebury and had been forbidden to read the works of Jensen and Murray and Richard Lynn, how uneducated I'd have been. I would have been just a well-meaning liberal who thought it was bad to be bad to blacks, but I would have missed out completely on all I've learned about black subculture in America and all I've learned about race and IQ and all I've learned about what it would take for a humane society to operate and all that I've learned about how to make a case that women are as intelligent as men. If you don't argue against your opponents, if you just declare them beyond the pale of reason, you miseducate yourself. You can't possibly formulate a coherent position in favor of your views. But the main thing is, when you talk to me, you have the impression that you're talking to a person who's learned a great deal about the black experience in America, who's learned a great deal about cross-cultural data, who knows something about the relationship between IQ and education, And that is essentially because I read Jensen and Marion Lynn and wasn't prevented from being exposed to the terrible nature of their published works. So this comes back to the way that, uh, well, the students within universities like Yale and Middlebury are preventing people from accessing the work of people like Jensen and Murray. Yes, and the problem is, of course, that there are other factors at work. As you know from my writing, students today just read much less broadly and in depth than they used to. Despite the fact that more go to university, fewer adults are reading serious history or literature. And they, to a degree that they don't realize, are like medieval serfs who are captive in the bubble that, uh, of their experience that is dictated by the mass media and the politicians. That makes them, by the way, much more malleable and makes it a lot easier to get them to march off to war. So although they have profited from a century of gain in cognitive ability, you have to marry that with knowledge (laughs) in order to get anywhere. You can't marry it with increasing ignorance and expect things to improve much. And to take a, a, a position on free speech that systematically keeps you ignorant is not the answer. You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor James Flynn, intelligence researcher. When I first read your work and read about the Flynn effect, over time I thought about this and I thought, is it really likely that IQ is going to increase exponentially by a standard deviation, fifteen up to 15 IQ points every 20 to 25 years, which is a rough measurement of a generation. And I thought really statistically, it's more likely that things will regress towards a mean. And then recently I discovered the reverse Flynn effect. That's right. Well, I wrote an article on that that I hope you've read. It was published in Intelligence a few years back. Yes. And I say there's nothing about the Flynn effect that's written in the stars like the law of gravity. The reason the Flynn effect has occurred is that over the 20th century, most people have been exposed to more cognitively demanding environments. 
And if that is no longer true, they won't make gains. Not only won't they make IQ gains, which is trivial, they won't make gains in terms of developing critical intelligence. And, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing written in the stars. I think there's every indication. Today, young people are having a much harder time finding intellectual challenge at universities. I read a study which said that IQs peaked at around the late 1990s. Uh, it's been reported in nine That's studies right. in, in seven countries. In Scandinavia, among young adults. If you read my stuff, you'll see that in Holland, it looks like it's stalled, but without regressing. If you look at Germany, there's an amazing difference. They're gaining still in vocabulary, but losing in spatial visualization. If you look at America, they seem to be gaining a bit on all fronts. And you have to look at it by age group. Elderly people in practically every advanced society are making big IQ gains over their parents at an elderly age. You know, they're being stimulated and exercising and better diets. So you have to look at by group. My feeling is that during the school years, we've reached a point where for reasons we can't really manipulate, most young people, particularly males, are interacting less successfully with the school environment. So I would be very surprised to see data that shows IQ gains in that age group. I think we're still in a position where the world of work is making a few more cognitively demanding jobs than it used to. So we would see moderate gains there. And of course, in old age, we would see quite profound gains. So you have to ask not only what country you're dealing in, but what age group you're dealing with. They did a wonderful study of ravens, mm. and they found that when they compared modern kids with kids in the 1930s, they didn't gain much at school because in Scotland at that time, years of schooling were pretty universal. But what they did find it was that later on, after their school years, they made profound gains on ravens. I guess my point was that in this day, the 500,000 Danish men uh, declining below pre-1991 levels. To me, it seems like IQ tests are no longer matching the environment for what selects out for what's important in terms of intelligent behavior. Yes, the intelligent thing is to read widely, think hard, argue with your opponents, and develop critical intelligence. That's always been the really important thing. Well, could it change, though? Yes, that can change, and I'm afraid it's not necessarily changing for the better. That is, I'm afraid, again, that young people are reading less. Apparently, all the studies of American schools, if you've looked at my book, show that even in terms of occupational skills, kids are losing critical intelligence, and they barely even read the course material any longer. I mean, there's a social trend. A majority of courses are now given in America by adjunct professors who can be fired at will and have terrible conditions. And they're desperately trying to publish despite being overloaded. And they make a hedonic pact with the students. They say to the students, we won't ask much of you as long as you give us good write-ups. And the students follow. There's a great correlation between how favorably they are and how easy a course is. And they have relapsed to where they're now reading probably no more than five or eight hours a week as compared to 13 in the past. So they say to the lecturer, go ahead, give us a course book. Give us something that all we have to do is memorize a few chapters from and we can get an A. And we'll write you a good reference. And the beleaguered lecturer thinks, you know, God, if I assign a demanding essay, think of all the marking I'll have to do. I'd better spend what little time I have on trying to publish in a professional journal. So you have a situation in which students and staff corrupt each other. (laughs) Yes, I've been in that situation. (laughs) I suppose I meant that perhaps what is required from the environment for intelligent behavior changes. So I'm thinking that as technology develops and people have access to information all the time. So if you think about, I administer as a provisional psychologist, the WACE, and 
some of it, even the fluid uh, abilities, I can see could be encapsulated if you just had practice in the right area, if that makes sense, like block design and pattern recognition. you have to know something. Take advantage of the internet rather than be corrupted by it. If you just set sail on it, almost any screwball can influence Mm. you. How can you know why there was a terrible war in Nigeria if you don't know that a war even happened? Mm. You're never going to put into your Google what were the causes of the war in Nigeria? You're ignorant that the war ever took place. I guess I mean you don't need to remember information anymore necessarily, like what's being tested in the waste, because you can just outsource that to technology. Yes, well, many people seem to think that they are making use of the visual world if they merely garner a lot of helter-skelter information on what immediately interests them. <laughs> uh, that's not the way to proceed. But the main theme, I mean, I try and show how academics in some ways are their own worst enemies. They too can be dogmatic and persecute academics who have a minority view. And I also try to point out that people who train teachers are not innocent of the fact that the students these teachers teach come to university without the equipment to do well. So it's not all a matter of academics being beaten up by other people. They beat up on themselves. And sometimes the students they turn out send them a clientele that's not promising. You're listening to the Deep Trouble podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor James Flynn, intelligence researcher. But the major thing of the book is something that almost no one will deny, but no one likes to face. And that is all of those who curtail free speech turn what should be a contest of ideas into a contest of strength. All those kids at Middlebury showed were that they were more powerful than Charles Murray. None of them could have argued with him. It's a case of might is right. That's right. It's a case of might is right. When you're on top You'll bully whoever you disagree with. And that turns it into a test of strength. Now, as long as you're on top, you still pay an incredibly heavy price for that in terms of remaining intellectually naive. But at least you're not likely to be thrown out of university. Uh, When the pendulum swings back again, we'll see what all these people think of this notion that the administration and alumni and fervent students can bounce anyone they take a dislike to. One of the social commentaries in terms of a criticism of you and Murray, because you've come under criticism as well. I'm a racist. I blame the victim because I talk about subculture. Yes. And I say, yes, black subculture is an important element that has to change if blacks are to have better educational achievement. I would say the same about Maori subculture. Certainly this was true of Irish subculture of my own group. And uh, I'm not there just saying... Oh, we are persecuted. We are turned down for jobs. We're not given housing. Now, all that's true, by the way. I mean, you know, Irish in America, when my father was young, he faced no Irish need apply ads. They said they would advertise a job and they would say no Irish need apply colored man preferred because they thought of blacks as being less violent than Irish were. So they were turned down unjustly for jobs. And Jews were kept from going to Harvard because they were Jewish. And, of course, Chinese today are kept from going to Harvard because they're Chinese. They invent all sorts of junk about how you get extra points for playing the nose flute or, you know, well, you, something of that sort. You take exception in your book and in your work to particular departments within the university, so things like yeah, black studies and women's studies. Yeah, they're academic fashions, and people outside the academic fashion are often find no home there. So, I mean, the, some of the departments that you have an issue with are things like women's studies and black studies. Well, those in particular... Because they don't just have a sort of intellectual party line based on too narrow a research agenda. They have an ideology that defines the ideal student. And the ideal student in a black studies department is someone who flirts with the revolutionary left and has no time for reading conservative black scholars like Thomas Sowell and others that he would learn a great deal from. 
So they actively corrupt their students by demanding not only that they be intellectually in fashion, but by demanding that they be ideologues of a particular persuasion. You you take exception with some of the ideas or some of the rules within these departments in relation to trigger warnings. You talk about Monash University developing its yeah, own trigger right. warnings for courses. I mean, that's courses. the latest outrage. Yes. That every lecturer should comb through their lectures and find the slightest thing that might upset everybody. As, as Chicago says, people go to university to get upset. Yes. They're, they go there to seek out ideas that upset them and make them think about them. There was a terrible thing, I think it was at Vassar, where a group of women got together and said, one of the worst things about having Charles Murray come to campus is the time students have to spend to think about how to refute him. <laughs> right. As if that were, were something bad rather than something good. Because ideologically, you talk about the things that are important to you in terms of free speech. So I feel like the point that you make that is important is that if if we stop talking, if we stop talking tomorrow about things like IQ gaps between different populations, that wouldn't make it go away. Of it, course it doesn't. And it, would, it mean, could make things worse. doesn't bend the wishful thinking. Yeah. By the way, the book is now out. Oh. Emerald Press, you know, adopted it and accepted yes. it. They sent it to all the readers. They had their editor, content editor, approve it. And all it had to do, as you know, was to go to the style editor for typos. And then I got a letter that they were afraid that under Britain's hate speech laws, it was too risky to publish. Yes. And the reason was that someone might... Not that I was a racist, but someone might selectively take passages from it that would seem damning. Well, of course, you could get rid of the Bible on those grounds. Mm. The criteria for publishing a book is that someone could maliciously take passages from it to make it appear horrible. Well, uh... So I was very lucky that Academica Press has now brought it out and it's now been published and it's available from Academica Press if you Google them. By the way, it's under a new title, I should say. Right. It's now called A Book Too Risky to Publish. The subtitle is Free Speech in Universities. But, and now at least it is readily available rather than having some editor kill it. Yes, I think the, the conservative media misrepresented by saying it was a banned book, which it's it's not. We should point that out. It's that the particular publisher found the material sort of too legally and socially risky to publish for them? Well, I would like to think that that publisher was atypical, but I found in my efforts to place the book after that English publisher turned it down that I didn't really get any feelers from anything but very maverick presses, you know, a guy who had started a press in Scotland. And uh, indeed, I found just by sounding this without actually submission from students who are former students of mine, that when they talked to their publishers, they were warned off. And in America, of course, you face a different problem. And that is the press is so politicized that you immediately get, as I did, all sorts of offers from right-wing publishers that I didn't particularly want to be linked with. Mm. (laughs) And I also found that liberal publishers were like the English that they would say things like, geez, this is interesting, but we don't know that the public is ready for this. We don't yes, want parts of it weaponized. Yeah, they, yeah. They, were, they were frightened. And I finally found Academica Press, where the guy who publishes it was someone who salvaged publishing Murray's bell curve. Hmm. And their, their list seems to me pretty non-political. That is, they publish things from left, right, and center. So finding Academica Press was willing to put it out was a great boom. You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor James Flynn, intelligence researcher. The book made me think about whether you thought there were any limits to free speech at all. Oh, well, there are limits to free speech in the sense that even John Stuart Mill Mm. said you can't stand up on a balcony and shout fire. I mean, that can't in any way be described as political or religious debate. That's just a way of trying to get people killed by panic. 
Yes. And you certainly couldn't have people stand in front of a black hostel of a campus with two Klux Klein signs, and when they walked across uh, uh, campus to go to class, pursuing them with racial epithet. Yes. We all know that this is verboten. Of course there are limits. What is not, however, to be included within free speech is refusing to allow things to be said just because they upset people. Mm. It's one thing to persecute people and render their whole educational experience dysfunctional. Of course, you can't allow that anywhere any more than you can allow them to tackle them when they cross campus or, you know, try and burn their books. Of course, you, you don't allow people to shriek racial epithets. Uh, but when you have serious people who have a serious case to argue, to treat those books as if they were shouting racial epithets is weird. You take the fact that speech is not a total absolute, and then you run to the conclusion, therefore anything that upsets anyone is, isn't covered by free speech. Free speech is always placed within the limits of inciting violence, so that stands outside yes, of the... you can always twist free speech hmm. into a mere incitement to violence. That is, you, you can do that. But there's no evidence that in most of these cases on campus that any of these banned speakers or banned textbooks made any effort whatsoever to confront black or women students with people shouting sexist or racist epithets at them. What was obnoxious about these books was that they made a case that students disagreed with and didn't know how to refute. <laughs> That's what made them obnoxious. Well, there was a part in your book where you talked about, uh, and this is the part that made me think and I thought was provocative, where you said, if I were the university president, I would allow the KKK to come in and distribute flyers and to even hold their rallies with uh, university. My view is that anyone who just presents someone with a flyer, they can either read it or crumple it up. They don't have to pay any attention to it. If I were a university president and the Ku Klux Klan wanted to put up flyers on a notice board, I would say, are you sure this is really worthwhile? You know, why don't you hold a meeting off campus where the authorities can deal with the problem and present your case? These flyers are just going to be snatched off these bulletin boards, and I'll have to pay the cost of having someone watch to see that they're not snatched away. And what exactly do you think you're going to accomplish with this? I guess I thought that are there some things that we can discuss that are not worth discussing? Yes, well, as I say, no one has to read a flyer. Now, I don't read most flyers I see on bulletin boards. I can immediately see their nonsense. And what's the problem with a student seeing some stupid flyer that's in favor of the Ku Klux Klan? Mm. I would assume that he would think, sad that there are so many ignorant people around and go away from us. Yes. Well, I, I guess in terms of uh, the way that I read that, it was in terms of giving them a space, even on campus, to speak. And I think, well, th there, there probably is limits in terms of allowing groups to come in. You wouldn't allow a group of, say, people who are pro-pedophilia or ISIS to come and speak well, at a university. I would, I would kill them by ignoring them. Why the hell does anyone have to pay attention to the fact that they want to give a lecture on campus? Just study your chemistry. Mm. But I would say that since their visits to campus so often create a riotous situation, I would say to them, public schools in our state cannot forbid you to hold a meeting. Find a public school 10 blocks off campus and hold your meeting there. And at least the university won't have to bear the cost of giving you security. Local cops will do it. The other thing was that in terms of the students, and the conservative media in America seems to focus on this, and the right-wing media, in terms of the protests and the students that are involved, it really seems it's a very small percentage of the university itself. And I can't imagine that it stems students. Well, look at how uncritical people are being at present about the climate debate. Mm. You know, this business, I was amused when a person whose intelligence I respect said, well, now at least we know what we've got to do. That, by the way, is now the message of the oil companies and the coal companies. Oh, it's not our fault. All you have to do is not use oil and coal and junk your cars 
when they know full well that that will never happen. That is, that has now been annexed by the powers who are doing these terrible things as if it lets them off the hook. <laughs> it's a, a wonderful idea that if everyone tomorrow threw their car into the leaf and uh, walked to work and didn't eat meat and didn't air travel, and wouldn't we be better off? But they think, gee, that's a good way to have people think. If they think that way, we're off the hook, and, you, you know, we can go right on uh, making our cars and using oil. And if people had a critical, of course, I published a book on the subject, No Place to Hide, on climate change. The only way to deal with it is by concerted action. Of course you want people to walk. Mm. And of course you want people not to drive expensive gas guzzling cars. But the only way to handle it is to actually have a situation where you do something to manipulate the climate to hold down temperature until we've discovered safe fuels, which is going to take us a few generations. So uh, I'm often appalled when I look at what my mm. students say, even the best students, and they will say, oh, oh, you know, all we have to do is force the politicians to be better people. It's a generational difference, isn't it? I mean, I thought that when I read your book as well, that there's an ideological difference between your experience from your life and the young people who are part of departments such as... There is a difference, but there's not a difference in a certain respect. And that is right from the day I was born, politicians and the media tried to brainwash me with what would make me a complacent citizen. <laughs> that still holds true, though the forces at work may be more powerful. I grant you that. Waving the flag and the internet may be more powerful influences than the daily newspaper was when I was a kid. Well, there's also that you take exception to departments within universities that are ideologically driven, and you spend a lot of time in the book speaking about postmodernism. Yes, well, there's that nonsense. But, of course, the problem is that so many kids now go to university just wanting to be a vocational advantage. And, of course, you can be a very good surgeon and still know nothing about climate change, know nothing about the role of money in American politics, that is, having none of the critical attitudes you need to improve the society. But you're very good at cutting on the brain, and you're very good at building a bridge and you're very good at programming a computer. So a lot of it is the shift away from the humanities and critical thinking to an overwhelming ethos where vocational advantage is the main purpose of the university. The things we were talking about before, trigger warnings, microaggressions, safe spaces. How do you feel about the idea of someone requiring a safe space because they hear a view, like Charles Murray's views, that they need to go to a place where they... Oh, well, I think, of course, there should be at every university a minor in critical thinking. You wouldn't make it compulsory, but every student could take it along with their major. And in it, you would have a curriculum that would be designed to encourage critical intelligence. A curriculum where you spent your time learning some history and reading some literature and taking some philosophy and learning enough social science and economics to argue with these people. I don't have any notion that I'm going to be successful in preaching that, although I make a few inroads, at least when I teach my courses, I try to integrate disciplines in a way that makes students critical. Well, it may be that universities are losing their purpose in sense of Thirty to fifty. Well, it's always lost the purpose to some degree. You remember they started really to train people to be clergymen. You know that was their original vocational setup. And then when people started realizing universities could teach them more to earn a living, there was a period, of course, hmm. when universities were flocked to to some degree by upper class people, some of whom just wanted to drink and run around but others of whom considered themselves reflective, genteel types. Mm. And they would, of course, uh, many of them, since they had, were going to inherit money, they would take things like Latin and Greek and philosophy and literature. Now, that group is now mainly gone. And uh, what you've got to get at university is an awareness by universities 
that part of their purpose is to teach critical thinking and not just vocationally valuable skills. Yes, well, I mean, there's a difference between the departments in terms of their ideological focus, though, as well, isn't That's there? That's right. They go, some of them are much worse than others. Mm. That is, the ones that really indoctrinate you in America are black studies, women's studies, and teacher training. And then on the heels of those are departments where you can't discuss the race IQ debate, departments where you can't discuss Israel versus Palestine, departments where you can't imply that different cultures are at different stages of development. They all have, of course, a certain bias against these views. And then there are a few departments, ideally philosophy and history and literature, which would be more open, but they're not necessarily. They can, of course, always be infected by postmodernists. You mentioned Professor Jordan Peterson, who has really found his fame through saying that the the issues in terms of the radical left and their, their culture within universities is related to some version of what he calls a neo-Marxist postmodernism. Well, you know, it's not just neo-Marxist. Yes, everyone tries to get in on the party. Feminist, yes. Marxist, God knows who. We'll all go around mouthing that there are an infinite number of interpretations of the universe and the people who try and rationally grapple with the universe are merely trying to get more powerful than people who don't. So he tends to link it to Marxism. Uh, Yeah, there are Marxists who do that, but there are many Marxists who follow Marx, who said that uh, there is objective truth out there. There's an understanding of the dialectic of history and why one society evolves into another, and what the impediments are in terms of realistic evidence that working people suffer. I mean, Marx wasn't a postmodernist. He merely thought that many dogmas were historically relative, which is true. And you can improve on that by becoming a learned person and recognizing which dogmas are merely suited to the ideology of a time and Trying to find a sociology and a history that transcends that. His contention is that Marxism is smuggled in through the back door, into, and there's a few thinkers like this as well. Like I think now it's the popular thing to talk about in terms of people like the neoconservative Douglas Murray. But Marxism is smuggled in the back door and is moved away from being around the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and, and around different groups and the power interactions between different groups. Well, that does. Anyone who looks at reality will see that different groups vary in power. Nothing particularly bizarre about that. I mean, I'd far prefer to argue with a Marxist who thinks that truth is possible and is trying to argue for a position that you have to see ideas in a sociological context to deal with them, which is a truth of sociology, by the way, and who is convinced that history uh, moves in terms of the invention of devices that serve human needs better, like the factory system. Uh, They, at least, you can bring evidence to bear because they assert something that's falsifiable. It's not falsifiable to go around and say everything is just a point of view. I mean, how can you falsify something like that, except to say, if you think carefully, no one believes it. Cultural relativism is a a strange beast in itself. And if you look at my book, fate and philosophy, you'll see how quickly I deal with this. Almost no one is really a cultural relativist. You'd have to be a very peculiar person to say that you equally appreciated the music of all different cultures. Such a person as a person who never goes to a concert because they're torn in 50 different directions. But there is a lot of muddled thinking out there. And the less we have free speech, and the more we have making it a test of strength, the more that muddled thinking will flourish. Do you think that departments like women's studies and and black studies produce any thought that is worthwhile? Oh, of course they do. Uh, uh, People invent better techniques in surgery, and people find a better way of finding out when bridges will be stressed, and people find better ways of growing food. So there are a lot of vocational things that are moving forward very quickly. I mean, Medicine today is much more scientific than it was 100 years ago. But when you get to areas that suit an individual to criticize their government, of course there's been progress in the sense that now almost everyone is literate. 
You know, it's very hard to criticize a government if you can't read and write. But I don't think that the last 30 or 40 years of university education are developing critical intelligence in any way to the degree that I had once hoped. Well, you can see it as a backlash as well. I mean, if you look at the history of um, African-Americans, the ideological bent of black studies, which may seem extreme in, in some ways, and the activism within it, but it's been in response to something, though, hasn't it? A history of white supremacy, a history of slavery. Well, the history of white supremacy should be looked at very carefully in the light of fact and evidence. It shouldn't be clouded by a lot of self-serving myths. There was a period after slavery that for peculiar sociological reasons, black families tended to be more stable than white families. So to just run around and scream, black family instability as a legacy of slavery needs more examination. There are many, the question of why women have a lower income and average than men is a very complex problem. You find, as Eric Holmes said, that almost any person who is in any way disadvantaged, their best instrument is the truth. You know, they, they, they have difficulty mustering the same power as their oppressor. But once they can become convinced that truth is on their side, they have an extra string to their bow. Discouraging the notion that truth is possible is not the way forward. You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor James Flynn, intelligence researcher. We've had a good chat. Do you have much more on that? Well, I was going to finish with a thought of mine in relation to uh, the things that we've been talking about, things like trigger warnings uh, that have been developed in these departments and safe spaces. My view is that they become a problem from a psychological point of view if you look at people like from Pavlov and Watson and Skinner in that they really undermine everything we learned in terms of behavioral functionalism. If you want to make people more resilient, if you want people to get over their uh, or get past their psychological issues and their phobias and their anxiety, you certainly don't shield them from them. To make all of psychology about how can we produce a world in which everyone feels most comfortable is <laughs> not really a valid objective. To some extent, the universities themselves and the experiences of the young people, they are products of their environment too. Well, people pay a lot of money in most countries, not, let's say, America, to go to university. And when parents fork out that amount of money, they don't want getting a degree to be too difficult, do mm. they? Uh, you, you want it to be easy. It's hard to make it easy in physics and chemistry and math, but we found a way to make it easy in the humanities. A lot of it does have to do with the sociological setting of the university. I think what's changed as well, you think that it's an interaction between student activism, which they learn in particular departments. I mean, I worked, I was in psychology and then I was in molecular biology. There was nobody protesting there in Australia. If you looked out the window, it was the humanities department. So there's a, you know, there's a particular personality type that gravitates towards a particular department and and an interest. But it's the interaction between that and, the, I think, the corporatization of universities. That's something I don't get into enough. I restrict myself mainly to the humanities and the social sciences. And I say you could write a whole other book on the corruption of places like physics and medicine through corporate influence. I just didn't have the energy or the knowledge to undertake that path. Uh, And that's my take on it, is that you have a university that essentially doesn't have the ideology of of places like Chicago, because if you're corporate, you don't stand for anything. You stand for getting as many clients, students aren't students anymore, they're consumers and clients, getting as many students in there, getting as many international students as possible because they pay more money. CEO wants a quiet life. Yes. They don't want people who upset students. They want students to pay their money, get their degrees, and everyone be happy. And that's an ideal university. Well, if you're a consumer, you shouldn't fail a a subject because you're not getting consumer satisfaction, are you? No, you're not. But you may be getting a certificate that will help you earn a living. Yes, yes. 
Thank you, Jim. Well, it's been good to talk to you, and we'll have to stay in touch over time. In a few months' time, the book will be a more affordable because the paperback edition will be out. And I may get in touch with you so you can alert people when that's the case. Sure. Well, thanks for talking to me. Yeah, thank you. Well, bye-bye then. And so that was the interview that Dr. Mark Halloran did with Professor James Flynn. Now, there's a lot that comes out of that, Mark. I'm going to run a little theory past you here. What do you think of this theory about intelligence? And I was thinking that instead of intelligence, I prefer something like propensity to learn a skill. So, for instance, some people have a propensity to learn how to play a musical instrument well. Those people might not have a propensity to do well at high-level sport. Other Mm. people can pull an engine apart and other people can survive in the harsh environment of inland Australia far from middle-class home comforts. All of them could be termed or could be seen as a kind of intelligence where you see intelligence as being more a potential. But what do you think about that theory? That's well established. I mean, the model that we have now is mostly focused on general intelligence or what the factor is known as as G. It's called a unifactor model. Mm -hmm. But there have been multiple different models of intelligence over the years. What you're talking about sounds like Gardner's multiple intelligence, which has been very popular within education. There was Thurston's model of intelligence, and there's always been a competition between the one factor versus many. And in fact, James says that there's been an over-reliance just on focusing on general intelligence and G. I think the problem, like you said, is that intelligence is incredibly value-laden. So when we say that intelligence tests tests unequivocally intelligence, human intelligence. It has an immense value attributed to that. And I think that you could say that what you're getting is IQ scores, not intelligence. And people think that's sort of being a bit mealy-mouthed and avoiding the issue. But I think that if you make an intelligence test intelligence, you're at risk of sort of reifying it to the point of of the construct itself. I think that when I asked James about this, he said you can either say that Weschler tests in America measure IQ that predicts school performance, or you can say that they measure the peculiar variant of intelligence that happens to pay dividends in terms of school performance in America today. He feels as though that choice clarifies nothing. I sort of wish that we came up with a different name. I know that we've moved away from that idea. Like So the the SAT was the scholastic aptitude test, and now it's the scholastic assessment test. So it's, it's a move away from this idea of maybe an hereditary innate ability versus one that's more environmentally learnt, if that makes sense. I should also say the reason that I spoke to James was because he wrote a book recently, which was released in 2019, called In Defence of Free Speech, the university as a censor. And this is going to be published through a UK publishing firm called Emerald Publishing. They decided not to publish the book. It then hit a lot of the media, Sky News, Bolt Report, Quillette as being a banned book. I don't think even James would agree with that. The publisher just decided that they weren't going to go with it. Uh, The book has now been published. I think its title is A Book Too Risky to Publish, Free Speech in the Universities by Academica Press. A book too risky to publish free speech and universities. If you put that into your search engine, you'll be able to find that online. That brings us to next week's interview. And this is another really intriguing interview. I had a whole string of them. Professor Ken Freeman. He's an Australian astronomer and astrophysicist who is currently Duffield Professor of Astronomy in the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the Mount Stromlo Observatory of the ANU in Canberra. He was born in Perth in 1940. Importantly, his main research interests are in the formation and dynamics of galaxies and globular clusters. He is particularly interested in the problem of dark matter in galaxies. He was one of the first to point out that spiral galaxies contain a large fraction of dark matter. But what is particularly interesting was 
how he reconciles his scientific research with a devout religious belief. Oh, he's co-written a book with David L. Block, which is called God and Galileo, What a 400-Year-Old Letter Teaches Us About Faith and Science, about the demarcation between science and faith and to not interpret the physical universe in relation to scripture. Well, yeah, how you can reconcile those two things, you'll find out next week here on 94.9 Main FM on Deep Trouble when Dr. Mark Halloran interviews Professor Ken Freeman. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Main FM, Castle, Maine.